continue our study in the book of Matthew. Lord willing, we can fill up, finish this chapter today, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. The message is entitled, The King's New Paradigm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as your children, give us understanding. Apply it to our lives. Lord, that you might, that we might be conformed to your image, that we might become the reflection of your grace, your love, your holiness in this lost and dying world. Lord, that we might hear well done from you one day because we were obedient, we were faithful in our time and our place. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that do not know you as their own personal Savior, they have religion, but they have no power. Lord, that today would be the day that you draw them to yourself, that they're born again. And then we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The king has given his mandate and he has been teaching and healing. So you think that people would be getting the idea that this is a different deal. It's a whole new deal. But people are slow of heart. We begin in verse 14 with the disciples of John. Now, I think the Pharisees put them up to this, and that's why they include the Pharisees in their question. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's a good question. Why do we fast? I think the Lord could have just turned and said, yeah, why are you fasting? Why do you fast? Years ago in our build courses, biblical, uh, biblical Institute of Leadership Development, that's what we began to do. And I think it's important to ask of all ministries on a regular basis, why are we doing what we're doing? Is this an assignment from the Lord? Are we fulfilling something for Scripture, or are we just staying busy? Well, it's just religious, what we do. It's just tradition. It's what we've always done. You want to stay flexible. You want to stay alive. As a ministry, you have to ask that question. And they weren't asking the question, so Jesus would say, well, here's why you fast. The Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 6, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. That's what they were doing. We're really good. What's wrong with your disciples? That's what they're asking. Why are you doing what you do? Now, I think it's really interesting that Jesus talks about the bridegroom here because if you go back to John chapter 3, beginning of our, about verse 21, the disciples of John asked John, and they say, John, you know, the, the disciples of this Jesus guy, they're baptizing more than we are now. And John uses the same language. And he says, the one who has the bride, that's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. So I must decrease and he must increase. Jesus could have said, why are you still fasting? Because that's kind of the intent of what he's going to say here. They're still following John the Baptist. There had been some followers of John the Baptist, but now they're following Jesus. Why are you still fasting? This is not the time to be fasting. You're wrong. And I think the disciples of John were probably intuitive enough that maybe they picked up the pointed illustration. 
And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they do that? No. A wedding is not mourning. It's a feast. It's a celebration. The bridegroom's here. And they should have said, oh, that's exactly what John said. Why are we still fasting? Why are we still following and doing what John, because he was to what? Prepare the way so that we followed Jesus. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The Bible doesn't command fasting to believers, but Jesus knew it would be a part of our our life. Now, we don't fast, again, we've already talked about this, we don't fast to try to move God. When the Lord leads someone, an individual, a group of people to fast, it's just that we might know clear what God wants, that we're, we're searching for an answer for the mind of God in something. I heard a very simple illustration. It said that the fast is, is, is the way to use it is, is when God's called you to really seek his face and you're in that time of fasting, what's the first thing you think about when you're fasting? Food, right? Oh, oh that's right, I can't eat. What you ought to be saying is, oh no, it's time to pray again. But fasting's not commanded and it's certainly not in that day when Jesus was with them. The day will come. And today... When we have to find out what God is telling us, sometimes it takes fasting. Verse 16, and here's where we get to the new paradigm. See, the Pharisees, maybe even John the Baptist, were looking back at Malachi, where he said that when the Messiah comes, he's going to sit as a refiner, and he will refine the sons of Levi. See, if we could just get the sons of Levi to be holy, then this system would work. God never intended for the law to save anybody. It's impossible. If you're living with that idea, if I'm just good enough, then God's going to look at the scales when I get to heaven, and he say, well, you know, you're better than a lot of people, so okay, you can come in. Or, like in Pilgrim's Progress, there was a young man named Ignorant, and his statement, and he fooled me for a while, but he didn't fool Pilgrim. And Christian was talking with uh, Hopeful, and Hopeful was saying, oh, he's got some pretty good ideas because he says he believes in Jesus and his, his death on the cross. But the bottom line was, ignorant was looking for God to affirm his righteousness. That's wrong. The Bible says our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Whatever you think you've done for God apart from Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, is not going to make it. There's only one thing that will help you in that day. And that is, does Jesus know you as his child? Have you been born again into his family? That's why when Jesus went to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was amazed. He was a teacher of the law. He was a ruler of the Jews. So he comes to Jesus to be affirmed. Okay, what you're doing, what you're doing, Nicodemus, is okay. That's why people come to church sometimes. Well, I just want to be affirmed, and they're so disappointed when they come here because we're not here about affirming people. Neither is the gospel. Amazing grace that saved a what? A wretch like me. That's what amazing grace does. So he came to be affirmed by Jesus, and Jesus said, um, you need to start over. What? What? You need to be born again. 
well, how can I do that? How can I start over now? I think Nicodemus got it eventually because he showed up and was the one with Joseph Arimathea to take the body of Jesus and lay it in the tomb. But he didn't get it right then. And these people are not getting it. Jesus gives more instruction. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. J. Vernon McGee said, Our Lord is saying this, The old covenant, the old dispensation of law was ending. He had not come to continue under that dispensation. He had come to provide a new garment. And that new garment was the robe of righteousness which he gives to those who trust him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. So when God looks at a child who's been born again into his family, he doesn't see his record of goodness from the time he got saved. What he sees is the record of Jesus cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In Pilgrim's Progress, nobody leads Christian in a prayer. Now, before he came to Christ, he was called graceless. But they kept pointing that way, and he kept reading the word. And one day, he came to the cross. As it were, he saw Jesus hanging on the cross, and the result was the sin just rolled off his back. And then the angels came, and they dress him. In new clothes, they take the old rags off and they put the new garment on. What a picture of what happens in salvation. Jesus had to provide a new garment, and that new garment was the robe of righteousness. John summed it up in his gospel in John 1.17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 8 says this. Excuse me, wrong place here. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have no been, been no occasion to seek a second one. So God wasn't just fixing up the first covenant. In verse 13 of chapter 8, it says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. It's amazing to me that the, some people, knowing the gospel, went back to that which was obsolete. So what are you talking about, Paul? You look at the Roman Catholic Church today. Can you imagine? Think about this. The apostles, Peter, the rest of the disciples that Jesus called to be apostles, even Paul, running around with the big hat on and the flowing robes. Like who? Like the Pharisees and the priests. What they did was they went back and reinvented old wineskins. And the glory probably was never part of that. And then Martin Luther comes along, and he thinks, hey, let me help you here. He writes a letter to the Pope and says, you know, these uh, indulgences, these are just wicked. Uh, That's just about the money. And guess what? The old wines couldn't, couldn't hold Martin Luther because Martin Luther had come to Christ. 
when he was crawling up in the old system on his knees with the glass tied to his knees. So he cut his knees doing penance. He's always doing penance and he's always going to confession. And the priest would tell him, Martin, come back when you have something to confess. But he had, like Christian, that burden of sin on his back. And he's doing penance, going up those steps. And all of a sudden, the truth, because he was always studying Scripture, the truth of Romans, the just shall live by faith, broke upon his heart, and he stood up. And the Reformation was born. Because the old things. Now, it's interesting to me, as churches get more liberal, what do they go back to? They'll go back to those all those, those, those dead orthodoxy and the robes because they could look better. Well, look, we're, we're serious. And guess what? Unsaved people like that. Oh, yes, we just like those traditions. They're so old. Well, so are these. But Jesus said, that's over. It's new now. There's a new covenant. And when he gathered his disciples around that table before he went to offer his life on the cross he took the cup of blessing at that passover meal and he said this is the new covenant in my blood that makes the old covenant obsolete obsolete romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 says there's therefore now no condemnation that's what the law was it was all condemnation for those who are in christ jesus For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was because of the flesh. The law is pointing as the flesh of man. And your flesh can't save you. You can never be good enough to equal the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and was an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And God the Father poured his wrath out on on his only begotten son. For those three hours on the cross. And then Jesus cried out, it is finished. The work of salvation was completed. There's nothing for anyone to do except receive it. And that's what it means to be born again. To receive the finished work of Christ on the cross. Well, we come to verses 18 through 26, and we see Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came. Now, think about what this synagogue official has to go through to even go to Jesus. The Pharisees can't stand Jesus. They've banded together. We're against him. Maybe Jairus was one of those group that were standing when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he pointed them and said, unless your rights exceed the rights of the Pharisees, you'll die in your sins. And maybe he felt that animosity and it pricked his heart. How many times are people convicted of their sin and they don't want Christianity, they think yet. But the gospel seed is powerful. It is the hammer that breaks the hard rock of the heart of a man to pieces and brings forth life. And God knows how to send any situation to give those he set his affection upon. This is the official at the synagogue, 50 yards, 25 yards from Peter's house. He has seen and heard Jesus. And so he has to just, well, I I don't know what to think about this. I I can't go that way. 
but the Lord knows how to get somebody's attention. Listen, you have a friend that God has burdened you with. John Piper says about the sovereignty of God, it's not just something written in stone, so whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved, but our king is alive. And he is still seeking for those that are lost today. And with your friend or somebody you meet, unexplainable, you just have this burden on your heart. And so what do you do about that? You pray. You begin to pray, God, prepare their heart. You look at some people and you say, well, they just have tried before and they just, you know, they've got it all together and they're just against anything that I would say. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus is not intimidated by any man. And he knows how to get their attention. In this case, it was Jairus' daughter. And she got something. It says in the other gospels, he comes to Jesus, she's about to die here. Maybe he'd gotten news. And he says, she's died. But I know. Why? Because now he's been given the gift of faith. Not something he worked up out of desperation. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and it is a gift of God. God gave Jairus faith. He said, but I know that if you just come and lay your hands, she will live. But I'm sure there was urgency. We, we got to go. We have to go. And as Jesus is going, there's this woman that, it says in the New American Standard, she has a hemorrhage. She has an issue of blood that she's been to all the physicians, the other gospels say. And she's worse rather than better. And she's spent all of her living trying to get well. And as far as the law is concerned, she's been unclean all those years. Anybody that touches her, anything she sits on, anybody that she touches is unclean. And here's, here's the new wine. Jesus can touch lepers. Jesus can touch sick people. Jesus can touch dead people. Because if she's died, he's asking Jesus to come and break the law. Only a close relative is to break the law. Jairus has faith that Jesus is greater than the law. God's given him. That's a gift. You know, you can argue people about creation, about the flood, about evolution, about all these things. And your great intellect, no matter how right you are, is not going to bring them over. But God knows how to bring them to faith. That's why it starts with prayer. And so Jesus is in the other gospels, as he's going, he perceives that virtue's gone out of him because when Jerry says he's going, all the disciples pop up, well, we want to see this too, right? And there's a crowd around him. Always there's a crowd whenever he's there in Capernaum, there's a crowd. Because people are coming from all over Israel to be healed because he can heal you. It's affirmed. This woman has thought in her heart, God gave her this. If I can just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, that's, that's all I have to do. I'll be healed. And Jesus stops. And he says, somebody touch me. <laughs> and the, the apostles are like, well, yeah. We, we don't have arm's length from anybody. We're kind of crowded here. He said, no, no, I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And she was afraid. She had been found out. She shouldn't be spreading her uncleanness. What does Jesus say to her? Don't be afraid. Your faith has made you well. See, it's the object of our faith, not our ability to work up positive feelings or strength of focus. The object of her faith was Jesus Christ. 
And I'm sure that Jairus is thinking, we, we got to go. We, we got to go. How are you going to feel if your child's dying? You have to go. By the time they get there, the professional mourners. Now in Jerusalem, if you're there on certain days of the week when they have bar mitzvahs, there's a whole group of musicians that are waiting to be hired as you go into the wall of the temple so they can celebrate bar mitzvahs. Same thing was true in Jesus' day of mourners. They find out that somebody is sick and dying and it's a wealthy, influential person like this. Obviously, they're going to pay for these professional mourners. These people are professional criers and moaners and screamers. And they have musical instruments and they show up. They've got to make a big deal about this person being dead. And Jesus sees them. He says, hey, you can go home. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laugh him to scorn. That's the world. Don't expect the world to get what you have until God changes their heart. Don't expect that. Don't be all angry at the world. They laugh at him. Jesus, don't you love who Jesus is? He just, he, nothing distracts him. The Bible says about Jesus that he doesn't quench the smoking flax. You know, you blow the candle out, there's a little thing, and you got to go like that. No, he doesn't do that. You see a, a reed that's bent, he doesn't break it off. He's focused on what God has called him to do. What a focus. What a savior. And he simply goes in. And I love this. Jesus is so tender. He sits down, takes the girl's hand. He says, get up, little girl. Isn't that precious? Get up, little girl. And the Bible says she gets up and walks around because she's 12. That's what 12-year-old girls do. They, they want to be moving. And he gives them instruction, don't tell anyone. And please give her something to eat. But what happened? The crowd spread it everywhere. This news spread throughout the land. The expanding message of hope. It's the new wine, the new deal, the new paradigm of the king. Next, in verses 27 to 31, two blind men. As he left Jairus' house, two blind men followed him all the way home. And when he entered back into his house, the blind men came up to him and said, Jesus, heal us. And they call him son of David. Have mercy on us. So Jesus looks at them and he says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. He touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus says again, warned them, see that you, no one knows this, but, verse 31, they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Then a demon-possessed man comes in verses 32 and 33. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him, and he healed them. And it says, after the demon was cast out, the, mat, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and they said this, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. That's exactly right. Nothing like this has ever been seen in the world. It's the new wine. But look at the next verse, the old wineskins. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, the other gospel, Jesus draws them up short. He says, hey, you're getting close. You might blaspheme me, but you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
You're getting close. You see, the new wine could not be held with the old system because it didn't, it didn't fit. You're supposed to be unclean when you touch diseased people, people with blood issues. You're supposed to be unclean when you touch a leper. You're supposed to be unclean if you touch a dead person. And Jesus brings cleanliness and life and health. It didn't fit. Didn't fit in their system. Last, these last few verses, 35 through 38, we see Jesus' ministry strategy. What do we do in our day when we see you know, we, we want to affect a culture, a community with the Lord, for the Lord, then we gather together and we go to some seminars and we summarize and then we categorize and we go out to conquer. What's the newest way to get this done? This, I think, passage is, is abused. And any time somebody wants to be and do a new thing, you know, be a pastor with a big holy t-shirt, I don't mean holy like separate to God, I mean dirty and with holes in it, and, uh, you know, some uh, kids' tennis shoes, and that dates me. And just look sloppy and say, hey, we're like Jesus. This is the new deal. These are the new wineskins. You old people understand that. They miss the point of what this passage is about. The passage is about the new covenant. That doesn't change. Now, God might choose to change a strategy, but it's not based upon what I think or what you think. It's not based upon the style police. What's really amazing about the style police in Christianity today, they really just want to make themselves comfortable. It really has nothing to do with the world. Oh, they say, oh, we want to reach the world, so we want to be as much like them as we can. Is that how you reach somebody? It's not how Jesus did it. He wasn't like anything they'd ever seen before. But there was power. And it's interesting that, you know, this whole style police thing, we got to look like this, be like this, you know, you have to uh, be millennial, change your music, and that'll be changing all the time, I guess, when the next generation comes along, and then they got to have something different, new style. But they're really not asking the people in the world. People that are lost. When God begins to convict them of sin, you know what they want? They want something that's real. They don't care about the style. They want something that's real. They want the gospel because that's the hunger God has put in them. So Jesus says this, you want to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. Jesus was going throughout all the cities, teaching them in their synagogues. He was going where they were at, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 36 seeing the people that's the strategy actually open your eyes as a believer and seeing the people that are around you as lost you know they have all kinds of problems that bug you if you tend that that's as much as you are pharisaical in your mind that's how much they bug you you know but jesus saw the people what did he see they were distressed they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, some people are really striving to get ahead, and it looks like they have everything figured out, but they're miserable. What did he do? He had compassion for them. He saw them. Do you see the people that are around you as lost people? 
You know, when Samuel was going to anoint the next king over Israel, God sent him down to Jesse's house. He went through all the brothers, and they were big and strong and good-looking. And every time he came to the next one, certainly this is the one, Lord. The Lord said, no, that's not him. Certainly this is the one, Lord. Look at him. He's just, you know, he was thinking Saul, big, tall, and strong. And God said to Samuel, Samuel, man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. Only when we begin to pray for people can we begin to see them with God's eyes and have compassion for them and have a burden for them. Secondly, verse 37, understanding the task. The harvest is huge. And we have very few laborers. You look at the world and just say, ah, it's a lost people. Oh, the Bible says it's a broad road, and whoa, they're so lost. Jesus looks at them and sees a harvest. He sees a harvest of people that can come to him by faith. But he recognized there's few laborers. So what do he say? We got to get back to Jerusalem. We got to have a big seminar and get a lot of people trained to do this. We got to have some, you know, some conferences. We're going to have some events. No, he says this. Pray. Pray. See, God's the only one that can change a heart. God's the only one that knows what it's going to take in an individual life. He's the one that can get you to speak exactly the words that you need to speak to that person if you're walking in the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon was preaching one day in his great big church. And for some reason, the Lord laid his heart. He said, young man, you take those gloves back to where you stole them from. He said, I, that was from the Holy Spirit. He said, I he, he just went on with the sermon. Every Monday, he had a, a time in his office, people that were seeking. They didn't have an invitation to sing Just As I Am. I don't know if it had been written at that time yet, but uh, they would come to his office. They were, they were seeking to be saved. And this young man showed up, and he said, Oh, pastor, I don't know how you knew that, but I was so convicted. I returned the gloves and I need Christ in my life. God knows exactly what it takes. So with us, if we want to see Laramie affected, if we want to see the world affected, it starts with prayer, not with our strategies, not with our busyness. We do so many things that just busyness. Well, you know, this is what churches do. They got to have these things. Carl is struggling with that in a very traditional church over in Cheyenne. This is the way we've always done it. Well, there's nobody to do that ministry. Yeah, but we've got to have a committee for that. They have no children, and yet they want to buy a bunch of children's material. And so he asked the lady in charge, um, have you checked out the theology stuff? What are you talking about? They're just kids. Like, it doesn't matter? And secondly, we have no kids, so why are we going to buy material? Well, we've always bought material. Why are we doing what we're doing? It's so important for us as a church and us as elders, and we do this to stop and say, okay, Lord, you tell us. What is your plan? Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest, beg, beg the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest field. It's his harvest. So we ought to be harvesting the way the Lord wants us to, not what the world says is cool. That's what Christians are doing today. What does the world think is cool? And so we can invite people to an event that the world, the world thinks is cool and that we won't have to be embarrassed about. 
And then people will get saved. That's what people do. Point is, that's not God's way. God's way is, you beseech me to send laborers into, the, into my harvest. And what happens when we're praying that way? Many times God sends us. Because he finally has our attention to see people where they're at, to see them the way he sees them as lost and dispirited without a shepherd. He can give us a burden and compassion for them to be able to go and minister exactly what he wants to minister to them. And then he gets all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. What an amazing passage. This had never been seen in Israel. Lord, we know this had never been seen in the world before. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that would be close to your heart. That we'd be seeking your face in everything. That we'd be always asking, Lord, why are we doing what we're doing? Is this God's assignment? Has God called me and gifted me for this assignment? What about my lost friends? It starts with prayer, Lord. You've burdened us with people. People come here each week that don't know you. Lord, we pray for them that you would convict them of sin, that you would draw them to yourself, Lord, that you would show us the opportunity to speak and then speak your words to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.